Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Isabel Moore, and I'm a guest host on the channel. Today, my conversation is with Manisha Sinha, a professor and graduate program director of Afro-American Studies and an adjunct professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, published by Yale University Press in 2016, is the topic of today's show. Sinha explores the abolitionist movement in the U.S. through a transnational framework and centers the role of African Americans in that struggle. Her work begins with the early roots of anti-slavery thought in the 1500s, then traces the abolitionist movement all the way up to the Civil War. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Isabel Moore, one of the guest hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Manisha Sinha, about her new book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, which was published with Yale University Press in 2016. So, Manisha, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you so much for being here. So um, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in the study of history. Well, um, you know, as your listeners might be aware from just hearing my name, I was born in India and I came to this country to graduate school to really study American history. I was kind of interested in um, the issues of race and democracy, um, especially a lot of us growing up, growing up all over the world in the aftermath of the civil rights movement. We were We were interested in those issues. And I guess... From that, I worked my way back to the history of slavery. Uh, and um, my my first book, my dissertation was um, on, on pro-slavery politics in South Carolina. Um, and then uh, after that book came out, I did a number of smaller projects and edited books and um, began with this one, which took me 10 years to write. <laughs> yes. So that's this is my second book. Mm-hmm. And so, and, how, how did you get interested in um, in this particular book, and how did you come to write the slaves' cause? So, as I was telling you, my first book was um, on um, states' rights, constitutional theory, pro-slavery ideology in antebellum South Carolina, and I guess the sort of easy answer is that I, you know, finally wanted to write a book about people I actually liked, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it was also circumstance. Um, my uh, first uh, teaching job uh, was at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And, you know, just being in this area, um, the, the the sources are so rich on the history of the abolition movement. And I really felt that, um, uh, you know, even though some very good books had been written on, you know, various parts of the abolition movement, I wasn't so happy with um, the way in which the movement had been portrayed. In fact, I think 
what was lacking was, you know, using a sort of a social movement perspective that, you know, you didn't get the sense that this was a movement uh, that lasted a long time and, you know, that had a discernible ideology and, and debates over tactics, etc. You you get that a lot in different movements when you, you know, study late 19th century or 20th century U.S. history. You didn't get that with the history of abolition. So I started off thinking, okay, I will write a book on abolition, maybe look at just the antebellum era and look at the role of African-Americans in it. And I realized that you could not write a book um, about black abolitionists in isolation. You know, that had been done wonderfully by Benjamin Qualt. And uh, I just felt that there was a need to write uh, a, a new, a more comprehensive history of abolition uh, that would center African-Americans, but really tell the story of abolition in all its diversity and also in the long durée. So as a 19th century historian, I found myself going back to the revolutionary era to sort of trace the the sort of somewhat forgotten early phases of abolition. Um, so that's how I came about, you know, writing this big book. Uh, I thought it would take me a few years, but just, you know, having stretched the chronology so much from revolution to civil war uh, and then trying to do justice to various aspects of the movement, uh, I ended up taking a, a really long time and writing a considerably bigger book than I had imagined. It's a wonderful book, too. Thank you. <laughs> and in the book, like you said, you, you take it back to even really before the Revolutionary War, and you divide your discussion of abolition into the first wave and the second wave. So let's start by talking about the first wave. Um, when you took back all the way looking to the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s, can you tell us why you decided to go back that far and what you found um, when you looked at those early centuries? That's a great question. You know, um, I hadn't planned on going back, frankly, to early modern Europe, but I uh, was very aware of the fact that abolitionists right from the start were not just contending in, against enslavement, but also sort of these uh, new, very pernicious ideas about race and categorizing human beings into different races and um, and how that ideology of the sort of new science of man, the new racism that became the sort of bedrock for the growth of scientific racism later on, um, really did allow uh, many Europeans to defend uh, racial slavery, to defend the enslavement uh, of people who were considered, you know, non-white and, and therefore inferior, uh, and particularly of, of Africans. Um, and so I really wanted to look at some of those early African writers who tried to contend with this a little bit. And I think when you look at the origins of the abolition movement, uh, you need to go back not just to sort of the actions that the enslaved themselves are taking, for example, in shipboard rebellions in the African slave trade or colonial slave rebellions and runaways. All that plays a part. But I, I really wanted to recover some of the ideas of these early African writers um, who had to contend with the problem of race uh, in the modern West. Um, so I did go back, but I went back very selectively to, to just the, to just these sort of handful of writers who were trying to address this problem even before the emergence of a systematic abolition movement. 
Wonderful. And and you continue um, in looking at the early time into the Revolutionary War period. Can you tell us about abolition during the Revolutionary War period and the influence of the French and Haitian revolutions? Yeah. I mean, the the age of revolutions, um, you know, did inaugurate um, this sort of whole experiment in democracy and self-government in the Western world. And it also did problematize slavery. Now, as I said, there were, of course, people, particularly abolitionists, some early Quaker abolitionists, some early sort of dissenting Protestant um, sex, um, early Dominican Jesuit priests also, um, besides black writers who had voiced objections to slavery. But you see the emergence of a sort of an organized movement only during the revolutionary era. And part of it is because revolutionary ideology did problematize the existence of slavery. Um, and that's when actually racism uh, paradoxically now becomes even more pernicious because if you think about ideas of natural rights or, or even the Jeffersonian sort of claim that all men are born, you know, free and equal, then you have to explain why some are enslaved and unequal. And then race becomes a way for pro-slavery writers uh, to, um, to excuse the institution of slavery. So um, I, I looked at that initial debate and I looked at those early organizations, uh, most of them Quaker dominated. And I felt that a lot of those organizations were always um, sort of misunderstood. Uh, the Quakers were seen as uh, somewhat racially paternalistic, um, uh, not really interested in issues of, of equality and citizenship. And what I found was, uh, a lot of more cooperation and collaboration between early black leaders and, and Quaker abolitionists and, and a real effort on behalf of, you know, people like Anthony Benazay and others in, in sort of visualizing African-Americans as future citizens of the Republic. And I think this is what distinguished these early abolitionists from people like Jefferson and others who claimed to detest slavery but didn't do much against it uh, but also use ideas of race to excuse the enslavement uh, of people of African descent. Uh, and if they, you know, thought of an end to slavery, they always thought that, you know, we should simply get rid of black people, get rid of them, send them back to Africa. These are the sort of early ideas about colonizing all free blacks back to Africa. Um, they just simply could not imagine black people as equal citizens of the Republic. And, and I, I found that that's what distinguished some of the early abolitionists, uh, from these, uh, colonizationists. They actually, no matter how paternalistic they sometimes sound, um, they were really interested in this project of, uh, creating an interracial democracy. And for me, that was, you know, in the 18th century, early 19th century, those are pretty radical stances to take. Absolutely. And you talk some about um, the transnational context where these ideas were developed um, and the influence of the Haitian Revolution on abolition in the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, you know, um, despite all the wonderful work that has been done on the Haitian Revolution um, recently and even earlier, of course, uh, with people like C.L.R. James, uh, normally the Haitian Revolution is never talked about 
uh, as being part of and central to the age of revolutions, right? Um, and uh, to me, I mean, what was more interesting for me was to see the ways in which the Haitian revolution um, sort of influenced the abolition movement. Uh, so I was not really interested in writing a history of the Haitian revolution so much as writing the ways in which contemporary abolitionists imagined Haiti, defended Haiti, and used its example to call for an end to slavery, and how Haitians themselves uh, saw themselves as sort of part of a broader movement against uh, uh, slavery. And so um, to, I, I, you know, found that most uh, historians looking at the influence of the Haitian Revolution always talked about how um, most, um, you know, uh, Western countries, and they did in fact get uh, paranoid about the idea of slave rebellions and sort of con- constructed a cordon sanitaire around Haiti and how the impact of the revolution was somewhat uh, contradictory because it led slaveholders to become more vigilant and become more repressive uh, in these different slave regimes uh, throughout the Caribbean and, and in North America and Latin America. To me, what was more interesting was to see the ways in which contemporary white and black abolitionists uh, were inspired by Haiti. And this went against the conventional wisdom because even though some um, work had been done on how black abolitionists um, looked at Haiti, um, the the sort of conventional wisdom was that most abolitionists, especially whites, you know, shied away from the example of Haiti as being too violent and bloody, and they actually criticized the revolution rather than defend it. And I found just the opposite to be the case, um, you know, beginning with um, um, British abolitionists like Clarkson, Thomas Clarkson, uh, in the movement against the African slave trade, who wrote one of the first briefs for Haiti um, and who kind of became an unofficial ambassador for the Republic of Haiti uh, to abolitionists in the United States and abolitionist societies which are generally seen as at that time as being a little more uh, conservative uh, than the later radical abolition societies, uh, were very uh, admiring of Haiti. In fact, uncritically so, because it served an ideological purpose for them to, to, to sort of set up Haiti as this wonderful example of self-emancipation, as an example of the success of immediate abolition, um, and, 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 and just to be sort of inspired by it. Um, and so just digging that story out for me was, was interesting. And I realized that the Haitian Revolution, um, in fact, even more than the American Revolution in a way, was, was extremely important for the history of abolition. And I wanted to make sure that, that I, that I conveyed that, uh, by just looking at all these forgotten abolitionist writings, British, French, American, African American, Uh, that lauded Haiti and continue to do so, actually, uh, right down to the Civil War. And during that that same period, during this first wave, um, the abolitionists that you talk about who were were influenced by the Haitian Revolution and other currents of the Age of Revolutions um, began to actually see some success in the northern states. So can you tell us how emancipation proceeded in the northern states in the U.S.? Yes, so that's another time that we forget that the North simply, you know, the idea is that, oh, the North was not as invested in slavery as the South, so it made sense that they would be influenced by the events 
and the ideology of the American Revolution and simply get rid of slavery. And that was simply not the case. As you know, emancipation in the North unfolded over a fairly long period, you know, uh, beginning with Vermont in 1777 and ending with New Jersey in 1804. And, and most of these states, with the exception of Vermont and Massachusetts, uh, and New Hampshire, uh, passed these gradual emancipation laws that took some time to work out. And what we missed in that story uh, of, you know, state-mandated legislative emancipation um, is the role that abolitionists played, both black and white, in first uh, contending for emancipation, uh, the ways in which these organized societies, like the New York Manumission Society in the Pennsylvania Abolition Society that uh, managed to recruit uh, prominent politicians and some of the prominent founding fathers of the day, like, you know, John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, uh, managed to push this legislative agenda uh, through these states. And even once these laws are passed, you needed the abolitionists to make sure that they were uh, actually implemented. Uh, that northern slaveholders didn't try to shirk or get around some of these provisions. And this is where you see African-American petitioning, um, the suing for freedom. All these actions are part of that story of emancipation in the North um, that I wanted to tell. Um, and so, yes, you know, in contrast to the Haitian Revolution, which happens, you know, over a, another sort of long period of time, right? 1791 right down to 1804. Also, uh, it's a bloody, violent struggle, armed struggle. In the North, you have a different process, though you could arguably say that the, during the American Revolution, the numbers of African-Americans who defected to British lines or who fought with the Patriots were pretty much doing what the Haitian revolutionaries did too, which was to take up arms to, to fight for their own freedom. Another issue that you raised that was important during the first wave of abolition, which is the role of people of African descent throughout the first wave. Can you talk a little bit about um, how people of African descent kind of push the movement forward in different ways? Yes. So, um, I mean, the, the best story here, of course, is, is the way in which emancipation came to Massachusetts. Uh, and even though this story is sort of well known, uh, it was sort of dismissed as part of abolitionist myth making. Uh, but if you look at the historical record, uh, it is, in fact, how emancipation came to Massachusetts is because slaves increasingly from the 1760s onwards start suing for their freedom. Uh, and what's remarkable is that black women are at the forefront of this movement. A lot of uh, black women are suing for their freedom and gaining a hearing in court and actually uh, coming across increasingly more and more sympathetic juries and judges who are granting them their freedom on various grounds. And um, if you think about it, in Massachusetts, um, slavery is abolished because of a judicial decision by the Supreme Judicial Court. And it was because two slaves, their cases went right up to the Supreme Judicial Court, uh, which resulted in a ruling uh, by uh, the Chief Justice William Cushing, who basically said, that the new state constitution of Massachusetts is indeed uh, in uh, conflict with the existence of slavery and therefore slavery uh, is abolished. Uh, and 
the reason why this this decision is rendered is because two ordinary slaves, right? Mumbet, who later named herself Elizabeth Freeman, and Quark Walker, and, you know, his first name is interesting. It's an African day name, uh, sued for their freedom. And their cases went right up, and it resulted in emancipation in the Commonwealth. And my students at UMass would always be, you know, fascinated and and simply taken by the story that the idea that, you know, history can move in various ways, and it took two ordinary slaves uh, suing for their freedom, recruiting white allies to fight their cases uh, in the courts, uh, that actually resulted in an end to slavery. Um, so that was one of my favorite stories of Northern emancipation. But even in the other states where you had gradual emancipation laws, um, or even Vermont that had uh, a state constitution that pretty much outlawed emancipation, you had to have black people suing and petitioning to make sure that these laws were implemented. So for instance, even in Vermont, there were a couple of cases with African-Americans suing for their freedom and making sure that those constitutional provisions were implemented. So the notion that somehow a law is passed and slavery is ended and that African-Americans are somehow these passive recipients of the gift of freedom uh, was really not borne out uh, by uh, by the sources. Uh, and if you read closely uh, the ways the laws are passed or the ways in which people petition for manumission uh, and uh, how all that in concert with uh, petitions coming from abolition societies and Quaker abolitionists uh, and the Society of Friends ends up uh, moving the sort of momentum towards emancipation in the North. Uh, because even though slavery is not as significant an institution in the Northern states as it is in the South, um, it is not as if slaveholders there were content or happy to simply benefit their slaves. Uh, in fact, they fought to the nail and opposed many of these laws and, and tried to circumvent them by selling their slaves down south. So you needed constant activism on the ground and by the abolition societies to implement them. And African-Americans are a very important part of that story. And you also talk about the role of um, people of African descent in the U.S., but also British people of African descent, and then the connections between abolitionists, both black and white, between the U.S. and Britain. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found by looking at those international connections? Yeah, that's a great question, too. Um, you know, we we know of Olada Equiano because he writes the iconic, you know, one of the first slave narratives describing the Middle Passage. And even though a, a literary scholar has has challenged the idea that Equiano was actually born in Africa, uh, I'm not entirely convinced that he is right. Um, we know that besides Equiano, there were a group of Afro-British writers and abolitionists who were part of the movement to abolish the slave trade. Um, you could even just read Thomas Clarkson's uh, history, and he mentions uh, many of these people right, uh, who were part of the movement. Uh, but for some reason, their role was, has been neglected. I mean, there are some recent British historians um, like James Walwyn who had done a fantastic job recovering the writings of these early Afro-British uh, writers uh, and abolitionists. And I was fascinated by them because with many of them, you can see this kind of transnational exchange of ideas going on. Um, someone like John Morant, who was um, 
uh, with Prince Hall, one of the founders of um, uh, African Masonry, is traveling between New England, Canada, and Britain. Uh, and some of the, um, the terms that they use uh, to describe their uh, their uh, their societies and their early petitions, you know, Society of Africans, Committee of Africans, or Sons of Africa, which I think was, you know, kind of a parallel to Sons of Liberty. Um, and I found that not just uh, African-Americans in New England, but also these Afro-British petitioners to Parliament are using those terms. Um, so I argue in the book that, you know, that if you look at the first organized expressions of abolition and anti-slavery, we need to go, um, you know, uh, further back in time and look at some of these early black organizations, even though they did not last, um, like the Society for the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage. And that's always seen as the first society, abolition society, founded in 1775. Um, and in fact, that became the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, famously, and that did last and actually still exists today. Uh, but um, but some of these early efforts by uh, Afro-British, African-Americans in New England to form these sort of incipient anti-slavery committees and abolition societies were very interesting to me because they show as kind of an anti-slavery consciousness amongst all these people who were pretty cosmopolitan and who were traveling a lot um, and who had patrons in Britain, you know, whether it was the Methodist church or, um, you know, an individual uh, powerful neighbor, um, you know, they were fairly well traveled and sort of knew what they were up against. Uh, and yet, you know, kind of persisted in, in, in forming some of these early societies. Um, so yes, I mean, I think, uh, it was important to, to recover the influence of many of these Afro-British abolitionists who were somewhat forgotten. And of course, they were important for later American abolitionists because Equiano's narrative is then reprinted by, you know, anti-slavery workers and then later on by the Garrisonians in the 1820s and 1830s. So their influence was ongoing on the American abolition movement. And what, and what about, um, white abolitionists between Britain and the U.S.? How were they um, sort of in contact with each other and what did you find there? Yeah, so um, it, what's, what's so interesting is how much, for instance, the Society of Friends in France are influenced by the movement to abolish the slave trade in Britain and how much they are in contact uh, with the New York Manumission Society and the Pennsylvania Abolition Society and the sort of the uh, the sort of uh, overall group of these different state manumission and abolition societies in the United States, the American Convention of Abolition Societies. What I found was that they corresponded with each other constantly. They wrote to each other. They even corresponded with um, with uh, some of the sort of French abolitionists, uh, more radical sort of revolutionaries in Haiti, uh, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. I mean, normally our picture of these early Quaker abolitionists are that they are relatively conservative and pacifist. 
Uh, but here they are all in, a, you know, in a circle of correspondence. Uh, Brissot comes to the United States. He is helped by the Pennsylvania Abolition Society uh, to collect material for his writings. So there is a real uh, sort of a network um, an anti-slavery network already, a transnational anti-slavery network at this point, um, which normally people thought just, you know, existed through the Quakers uh, and their sort of connections in Britain and the United States or very kind of an Anglo-American story. But you could really include the French, you could include the Haitians. Um, there is a connection and a correspondence going on at this time amongst um organized abolition societies. Um, and even those, um, you know, abolitionists who are relatively conservative politically, somebody like, let's say, William Wilberforce, the British abolitionist parliamentarian, is also a big champion of the Haitian Revolution, interestingly enough. And Haiti names one of its men of wars after Wilberforce. So they are aware of his existence just as many slave rebels in the British Empire evoked his name, you know, the Haitians uh, honor him with naming one of their ships after him. So they see themselves as part of this broader abolitionist milieu. And I wanted to tell that story because I don't think it's been told uh, in that manner uh, before. So you really show that um, even though the second wave, what you call the second wave of abolition has gotten more scholarly attention the first wave was incredibly robust. Um, before we go on to talk about the second wave, is there anything else that you um, want to add about the first wave of the abolition movement in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think that I actually was alerted to its importance by look, researching the second wave because many of those abolitionists, including Garrison, who never said things like, I invented the abolition movement, which is what many historians writing about Garrison say, but I don't think they really read Garrison. They just have caricatures of him. That's another thing that I found very uh, puzzling to me as I wrote this book was how much of the material that was repeated over and over again was actually wrong and had no basis in the historical record. But but reading people like Garrison and others, you know, some of the more prominent figures of the second wave, including African-Americans uh, like Frederick Douglass, etc., they are constantly referring to these early first wave abolitionists. They're talking about people like Ben Azay. They're talking about the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Uh, they give them their due. And that's when I thought, wait a minute, there is a story there besides these early black writers who are also referring to Benazir and other white abolitionist uh, contemporaries, I, I knew that something important is happening the first wave and that somehow that those ideas and tactics that were tried there did influence this more radical phase, the, the second wave. And, um, you know, ironically, that's how I got back to that early period. And I realized its importance um, because abolitionists felt that they were part of movement and, uh, in a way, they they many times refer to the origins of their movement in this earlier phase. Great. Great. So if you can tell us a little bit about sort of how you define, you mentioned the second wave was more radical, but what were some of the similarities and differences between the first wave and the second wave? And how do you how do you define um, the transition from one to the other? 
So, um, you know, I have this one chapter towards the end of the first part of the book, which I call The Neglected Phase in, in Anti-Slavery. It actually, the title of the chapter comes from a book written by um, um, this, this, this woman, this historian whose book has been ignored, I think, by many historians of abolition. But she wrote a long time ago, I think she was a graduate student at Harvard, but never, you know, in those days, never ended up with a career. But it was an important book for me because she recovered all these phases of abolitionism in that sort of uh, period when the first wave is kind of waning with gradual emancipation uh, in the north. Uh, there's an increase in manumissions in the upper south, but they kind of hit a roadblock with the expansion of the Cotton Kingdom. Uh, and uh, even though the American Convention of Abolition Society still exists, but it's kind of dying out. And you have many of these sort of um, intermediate figures like Benjamin Lundy, under whom Garrison served an apprenticeship, uh, many African societies that are being formed, humane societies to prevent the kidnapping of free blacks from the north to the south. You see various forms of abolitionist activism sort of persisting at this time. But what you don't have is the kind of energy that was associated with those early abolition societies. And by the 1820s, the American Convention of Abolitionist Society, the organized is, is virtually disintegrating. There's no real organized expression to take its place. And what you have in the 1820s is this growth of kind of a more militant phase of abolitionism. Uh, it's marked by, you know, some famous slave rebellions, both in the British Caribbean uh, and some slave conspiracies in the United States, but also the growth of a radical, militant, uncompromising black abolitionism. Um, you know, somewhat forgotten people like Robert Wedderburn in uh, Britain, but in the United States, we hear of David Walker because he wrote the famous pamphlet that became so controversial, Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. But this is a time when African-Americans published the first um abolitionist pamphlets, the first abolitionist newspaper, Freedom's Journal, um, the first abolition societies, the Massachusetts General Colored Association in Boston. Um, and they're the ones who are really carrying forth the torch of abolition. But they are far more radical. Their voice is far more radical. Um, you know, their early, their, I should say their rhetoric is far more radical uh, even though they are interracial sometimes as uh, the earlier movement um, and they are calling for an abolition of not just slave, not just the abolition of slavery, but also for citizenship rights for African-Americans. They're against colonization, but their rhetoric is far more militant in demanding immediate abolition. You can see that rhetoric in Walker's pamphlet. So when Garrison comes onto the scene, you can literally see him absorbing all these different ideas and these new, this new kind of militant rhetoric of abolition. Um, the, 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 uh, sort of again, uh, uh, sort of misnomer that Garrison is somewhat of a pacifist. And yes, he does believe in nonviolent tactics in principle. But what fascinated me with the early issues of the Liberator was how much he devoted to the Haitian Revolution in a way emulating Freedom's Journal, the black newspaper, uh, how much he uh, space he gives uh, to militant black voices like David Walker, uh, whose widow actually names her son after Garrison. Um, 
you know, so it, it, you can see the emergence of this kind of interracial radicalism, which was fascinating to me because people didn't understand Garrison. They had no idea where he was coming from uh, and why his uh, language was so, quote, harsh and uncompromising. And it is the language of black abolitionism in the 1820s that he adopts, even though he's committed to nonviolent means. Um, and, and you can see that new radical phase emerging by the end of the 1820s. Um, you can already see it in some of Garrison's earlier writings. Uh, again, a, a myth, he was never a member of the American Colonization Society like many other uh, white abolitionist. He did give a speech under its auspices, was, but was never a bona fide member of it the way some of the evangelical abolitionists were, like Louis Tappan and Garrett Smith, etc. So he very quickly absorbs this message of militancy and anti-colonization from black abolitionists. And he never says that this is what I am doing. He says, I am literally learning from African-Americans uh, and he sort of says things like, I am amazed that we whites have been so blind to this, that I needed this, this to, to sort of read this, to open my eyes. Uh, and, and, and that's when I, I really see the emergence of this new radical second wave of abolition in the United States. Great. And you, you discuss um, how even as the movement was moving to interracial immediatism and a more radical stance, um, there were divisions within the abolition movement. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those tensions were and what you found as you looked into them? Yeah, so, you know, when the movement grows in the 1830s, you know, it absorbs different groups uh, into the movement, right? So when the American Anti-Slavery Societies formed, it's the Garrisonians, the African-Americans, some of the old Quaker abolitionists associated with the first wave, but also other groups, you know, evangelical abolitionists um, like the Tappan brothers uh, who were involved in some of the sort of religious reform movements of that time. Uh, and uh, even though they end up rejecting the American Colonization Society, which is a lot like the American Bible Society or the Temperance Movement, a lot of these sort of religious moral reform movements um, under Garrison's influence, a lot of them reject colonization, move out of some of these mainstream religious and moral reform societies because they don't really say or do anything against slavery, you know, societies like the American Tract Society, the American Bible Society, etc. They become more, they become radicalized by abolition. But they are a distinct group within the abolition movement. And they sometimes are very leery of Garrison's radicalism, which includes, you know, by the end of the 1830s, because abolitionists are subjected to so much state-sanctioned, virtually mob violence, that Garrison becomes extremely radical. He starts um, questioning the American state, uh, the church, uh, condemning them for being pro-slavery. And the evangelicals are just not willing to go as far as he is. He also starts experimenting with utopian socialism, communitarianism, with non-resistance, which is like virtually a form of anarchism, a complete rejection of all use of violence uh, and force, even by the state. You know, he gets involved in movements against capital punishment, again for prison reform, you know, all kinds of movements. And most importantly, women's rights. Um, 
Garrison is 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 truly radical on this question, and the evangelicals are very very leery about hitching on another unpopular cause to the cause of abolition, which they see as unpopular too. So you do have all these divisions in the movement over these issues and a group of abolitionists who want to go the political route, who really feel that the only way uh, to abolish slavery would be to actually um, get the federal government to intervene, uh, to form a political party, to to win uh, control of the federal government and kind of dislodge what they called, quote, the slave power. And Garrison was very leery of politics. He felt it was the realm of compromise and that agitators, as agitators, they should remain a social movement. So there were a lot of differences. Um, but I argue in my book that, you know, historians keep talking about how the movement became fragmented and what you see instead is that despite all the divisions, including the division within the abolition movement, it becomes kind of a source of strength for the movement. Because the Garrisonians retain control of the American anti-slavery society, yet you have the emergence of a new political organization, the Liberty Party. Meanwhile, the evangelicals work hard to reform the mainstream denominations. It actually ends up resulting in a split in the Methodist and Baptist denomination by the mid-1840s. They pour all their efforts into missionary societies that work with fugitive slaves in Canada. And eventually during the Civil War, they would become very important in terms of working with free people. So people expend their energies in different ways and different organizations, but the movement does not become fragmented and die. As the conventional story goes, in fact, it becomes bigger and bigger with different kinds of abolitionists and anti-slavery people joining different groups. Um, the other interesting thing that I found in the 1840s and 1850s was that when it came to certain issues, uh, abolitionists, despite all their divisions and bitter divisions, actually, over tactics and ideas, did not hesitate to cooperate with each other uh, when push came to shove. So you would have instances of like the Amistad Slave Rebellion or a particular fugitive slave issue where you would have Garrisonians, evangelicals, political abolitionists, African-Americans, women, everyone pulling together for one common cause. And that's why they were many times successful. Uh, and this continues even, for instance, the famous split between uh, Douglas and Garrison over political action and over the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. I mean, Garrison saw it as pro-slavery and, and Douglas really felt that the Constitution could be put to anti-slavery purpose. Uh, so that bitter split between them in the 1850s, you would still have Douglas coming up to Boston and and actually speaking in front of Garrisonian organizations. So despite all these splits, you find these moments of cooperation where you get a sense that at least for these people, um, they felt that they were working towards a common cause, that they were part of a broader movement, broader than their particular groups and organizations. And that is, again, a, a different kind of story of the abolitionist splits and divisions that I tell that that then it's normally told in, in American history textbooks. Great. Great. You and talk just, about also the role of women in the abolition movement and the role of the woman question and how that tied in with women's activism beyond abolition. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, about the role of women and all of the questions that were connected to their role? 
Yes, you know, I uh, to me that was one of the important stories emerging out of abolition, the way in which the women's rights movement came out of the movement, uh, out of the abolition movement. And even though, you know, Ellen Du Bois and some others had, you know, pointed that out, how important Garrisonian ideas were for some of the early feminists, uh, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, I think that story had not been completely told. Um, I felt that uh, particularly the role of African-American women were, was completely neglected. And if you think that some of the first female anti-slavery societies were formed by African-American women, it seemed odd to me that they were forgotten or the fact that one of the first American women to speak out in public before the Grimke sisters was an African-American woman. Um, Maria Stewart, I, I thought that had been neglected. So I wanted to to tell the story not just of how individual women um, and some of the early leaders of the women's rights movement, like Lucretia Mott, um, like Sojourner Truth, like uh, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony uh, were involved in abolition. Um, I also wanted to show how scores of women, including some of the sort of famous leaders like Abby Kelly Foster and Lucy Stone and others really learned um, uh, how to to agitate for their cause, the, to the women's rights movement in the 1850s, uh, with those famous women's rights conventions being held at the state level and at the national level, um, that how they learned many of the tactics of movement formation and organization, okay. uh, whether it is petitioning, whether it is a print culture, pamphlets, newspapers, or uh, conventions and uh uh, simply, you know, trying to spread the message of women's rights, how all that education in political organizing really came out of the abolition movement. Um, and, and so I really wanted to rec- recover the role of female abolitionists. I think it had been forgotten in, in many of the histories of the women's rights movement, even though if you look at those those tomes that, you know, that, that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others wrote on the history of the women's movement, how that really, you know, emerged, they, they did acknowledge it, but for some reason that is seen as, again, a kind of a myth-making about the women's movement rather than as a genuine acknowledgement of, of the role of abolition uh, in the emergence of the of the women's rights movement. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with people who are not normally uh, written about in the history of abolition, you know, thinkers like, like Margaret Fuller, who writes one of the first reviews of Douglas's narrative, or um, interestingly enough, Mary Wollstonecraft had written one of the first reviews of Lava Equiano's narrative. So there's an overlap there between the cause of anti-slavery abolition and, and black equality with that of women's rights. And I want to 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 tell that story too. Um, so I ended up doing that question mainly because um, women's rights is such an important part of the abolition movement, also because it leads to a fissure in the movement. Uh, it leads to some divisions over what is the proper role of women. And, and I think it makes the women themselves realize that the fight for women's rights is connected uh, to the fight uh, for abolition, that, that somehow exclusion from the body politic and from the rights of citizenship was something that they shared in common with African-Americans. And I kind of ended that chapter which, with, with kind of a, 
uh, sort of mourning the fact that when the women's rights movement of the Civil War sort of loses its moorings in the abolition movement, that connection gets lost. And you do have the emergence of a kind of a white women's rights movement. So even though you have a, the rise of an independent movement, which I guess is an advance um, for women's rights activists, something is also lost. And that is the abolitionist commitment to racial equality. So, you know, as I write at the end of that chapter, you know, some things are gained, but also a lot is lost uh, that 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 sense of overlapping radicalism that had existed in the antebellum period um, with the sort of division over the reconstruction amendments amongst women's, many of the women's rights activists and abolitionists and radical Republicans, you know, that that connection is lost. And, and that is not for the benefit of either, either of the two causes. And you also talk about the connection um, between a variety of causes that women's rights was connected with abolition, but also many abolitionists had ideas about other issues of oppression and liberation, about capitalism, about imperialism. Can you tell us a little bit about um, their ideas about these other issues and how they related to other movements that were addressing those issues? Yeah, that's another great question. And I felt that that was one one area where this book, I think, attempts to make uh, a, a sort of important intervention and, and an original one, which was to look at the ways in which abolitionists, especially in American history and also to a certain extent British history, have been caricatured as these kind of bourgeois moral religious reformers and what was completely forgotten was uh, their involvement with many radical international movements, including the early feminist movement. Um, and this, this history of, of transnational radicalism was virtually forgotten, uh, or hardly mentioned in the history of abolition. Uh, and those, uh, who, who looked at it sort of portrayed it as more as part of the growth of sort of liberal democracy and bourgeois democracy, uh, in the Western world. And I saw something very different, particularly with the Garrisonians. And again, Garrison caricatured as this kind of individualist who is very unsympathetic to the labor movement and, you know, I found very, very different. Uh, there were reasons why, you know, there was uh, some amount of cooperation and also some conflict between the early labor and abolition movement. But I found most abolitionists to be fairly radical in their critique of early market society, including Garrison, um, and, and, and quite taken with international radical movements, whether it was the communitarian movement, utopian socialism, you know, all trying to rectify the early ills of, of, uh, the free market and, um, very taken with the international peace movement, for instance, a lot of abolitionists, uh, especially some of the political abolitionists like Garrett Smith, William J. Uh, Tab and I involved with the international peace movements. Um, they are very much involved with other causes within the United States that we normally do not associate them with. Uh, the abolition of capital punishment, um, Native American rights, women's rights. Most of the men in the women's rights conventions, not most, in fact, I should say all of them, were abolitionists. Um, so here they are, you know, 
involved in contemporary radicalisms and contemporary transnational movements. And that radicalism had hardly been highlighted by previous historians. Uh, instead, they were many times seen as kind of justifying uh, directly or indirectly um, early capitalism, uh, lording free labor versus slave labor, which they did, but which did not necessarily blind them to the sufferings of wage labor. Um, and as even stalking horses for European imperialism. And again, I found the opposite to be the case. And this was really interesting for me, you know, as an Indian woman writing about American abolition was to find Garrison so critical of British imperialism and many British abolitionists who were so critical of uh, uh, what the British were doing in India and then seeing some of the connections with the early Indian nationalists who visited Britain and formed connections with some of these early British abolitionists. Now, I guess this was not significant for most American and British historians, but I recognize those Indian names immediately because they are very prominent in the Indian nationalist movement. Uh, and I discovered, in fact, that uh, one of the early Indian nationalists and social reformers, Raja Ram Mohan Roy, became very involved with a British abolitionist. He had finally lived with them. And eventually, when he died of ill health, he died in Britain and was buried in Bristol. And I think most Indians don't know that he's buried in Bristol in England and that his grave was constructed by British abolitionists. Um, seeing um, the critique of the 1857 revolt, the way in which it was suppressed by the British, by Garrison, he makes an immediate connection between the ways in which slaveholders talked about slave rebellions and the way the British were talking about, quote, native rebellion in India in 1857. And to me, that was really interesting to read. And, and I highlighted that. Uh, in that chapter on the Abolitionist International, because I think, again, this is this is something that most American historians are not being attuned, perhaps, so much to transnational ideas earlier on. Um, now, of course, that is very much in vogue, but also not being sort of aware of the significance of many of these figures and, and groups had ignored. And, and I, I, it was important for me to, to tell that story, to, to talk about how... Um, Garrison's son becomes involved in the anti-imperialist league, how many uh, British and Irish abolitionists are elected honorary members of the Indian National Congress. Um, you know, those were not just gestures. I mean, they were real attempts uh, at solidarity uh, of different causes. And since the conventional story is always that British abolition leads to British imperialism, uh, mainly by looking at the British state rather than, you know, the movement uh, at British abolitionists. I did want to, I wanted to trouble that story a little bit too and, and look at exactly what the abolitionists are doing. When you talk about sort of the growth and flowering of this movement that was addressing so many different issues, um, can you tell us a little bit about how that movement became increasingly radical, even revolutionary, as you say, um, and how slave resistance and fugitive slaves all kind of push things to the point of a war um, over slavery. Yeah, you know, in the 1850s, um, things uh, look 
pretty dismal, even for the political abolitionists, because you have, you know, you sort of begin with the Fugitive Slave Act, you end with the Dred Scott decision. In between, you have the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And it seems that the federal government is completely dominated and taken over by slaveholders. And there are all this sort of notion of, you know, beginning the Mexican War, you could go back even further to the late 1840s, all the, the sort of experiments in, in the sort of slaveholding imperialism, basically, uh, to overtake Central America, Nicaragua, Mexico, Cuba, uh, all these plans to kind of spread slavery. I mean, this is not... Uh, slavery on the defensive. The, these are very aggressive, sort of pro-slavery, uh, imperialist projects that um, that abolitionists are looking at. The revival of the African slave trade in the 1850s, American involvement in it, um, uh, and um, you know, you look at um, uh, uh, the ways in which uh, northern communities have to deal with. Uh, federal marshals and slave catchers and slaveholders literally, quote, invading their communities in search of fugitive slaves, you can see that abolition gets really, you know, even people like Douglas who had opposed Henry Highland Garnett's call for slave rebellion and a general strike by slaves, you can see them, you know, becoming very militant in the 1850s. Um, and it was not as if this did not happen earlier on, because it did. They were, but, you know, abolitionists worked through various ways. They worked through the courts. They worked through law. They worked through, you know, um, uh, street activism and literally opposing rendition of slaves. Many times the shock troops were African-Americans and African-American communities that housed these fugitive slaves. Um, and you can see that growing radicalization in the 1850s. Even the evangelicals are ready to take up arms. Uh, you can literally see the descent to civil war. Um, and so I call that phase a phase of revolutionary abolition and it kind of ends, it culminates with John Brown. And you look at John Brown, he is very much involved in many of these self-defense groups like the League of Gileadites in Springfield, Massachusetts. He's involved in the Kansas Wars, and he ends up with this plan um, to invade Virginia and uh, start a slave rebellion. Uh, he's a big admirer of the Haitian Revolution, of the Maroons in Jamaica, you know, he, he goes about, you know, he's he's always caricatured as this crazy fanatic, insane guy. And in, interestingly enough, one of the reviews of my book in a, in a in left publication was critical of my positive view of John Brown, <laughs> which I thought was a little uh, funny. But yeah, so I, I, I did notice that um, John Brown was viewed uh, as a revolutionary, not just by abolitionists, but also by... Um, you know, African-Americans and revolutionaries all over the world. So what is so interesting is that here you have somebody who's involved in the Paris Commune writing about John Brown. I mean, they see him as a fellow revolutionary. Uh, and if you look at mainstream American historiography for a long time, if you completely discount black writers and historians, he's always seen as this crazy, insane fanatic. So that that was actually interesting for me to see that um, uh, that phase of abolition again in in both the national and in a broader context, you know, recover John Brown as a revolutionary abolition and as and and not just as a singular figure, but as somebody 
whom even the pacifists like Garrison could admire uh, for taking uh, a, a strong stance against slavery. So, so yeah, I, uh, I, I, that was another part of the book that I felt I, I needed to write. Um, you know, there's a lot has been written on John Brown and some really good biographies by David Reynolds and others have come around, but, but he's always seen and is still seen as a very sort of controversial figure, but he wasn't so for most black people and he wasn't certainly for most abolitionists. And I argue in the book, revolutionaries all over the world, really. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, but um, is there anything you'd like to add about the second wave of the abolition movement or sort of some of the big um, the big ideas that you ask us to think about about the abolition movement as a whole? Yeah, so um, I, I really think that we need to recover the importance of the abolition movement uh, in effecting political change, in, in pushing the boundaries of American democracy, in enacting emancipation, and in the attempt then to kind of implement this vision of black citizenship and an interracial democracy. So I, I, I argue that, for instance, in the politics of abolition, you know, first with the emergence of the Liberty Party, but even with the emergence of anti-slavery parties committed not to the abolition of slavery, but to the non-extension of slavery, like the Free Soil and Republican parties, were real achievements of the movement that you would not have had these political parties emerge without that enormous groundwork that had been laid for decades by abolitionist activists. And I think Lincoln himself kind of realizes that. And um, even though this book does not go into the Civil War and Reconstruction, simply because then it would be a thousand pages long, uh, I kind of end uh, at the start of the Civil War. I did want people to understand that... Uh, one must see even somebody like Lincoln, who moves from colonization to black rights, who moves from non-extension to abolition to black rights, um, as part of this broader anti-slavery movement. Um, and that the attempt then to rewrite the Constitution to implement the abolitionist political project uh, of true emancipation, right, uh, that we must be able to draw those links if we are to really understand the significance and legacy of the abolition movement. And I think subsequent radicals in American history have done so. Uh, I sort of have an, an epilogue to the book where I talk about how very brief, how, you know, um, American socialists like Debs, Eugene Debs to Wobblies to civil rights activists um, uh, to present day uh, sort of activists against human trafficking and mass incarceration evoke the abolition movement. It becomes like a template uh, for American radicalism. And I wanted to, to sort of end the book with that, but I do want to carry forth the story of how radical social movements can affect political change with this new book that I'm writing on on the Civil War and, and radical reconstruction, uh, looking at the history of that forgotten period in American history when an attempt was made to actually implement the abolitionist political vision. Uh, the fact that it was overthrown should not uh, blind us to the fact that it was actually attempted. And, and that's what I'm trying to do right now. Great. Great. That answered my, my last question, but it sounds like you're going to kind of keep taking the, the story forward in your next work. 
Yes, I mean, it's it's going to be less kind of a movement history, more high politics. I'm really more interested now in issues of state formation and progressive constitutionalism to see how movement politics gets translated. What are the possibilities and limits for doing that uh, within the American constitutional order? Um, and so, so that's what I'm doing right now, uh, writing a book on, on Reconstruction. It's going to be a smaller book more high politics than movement politics, but uh, I think it's an important part of the story. Sounds like a great project. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed it and learned so much from the book. Um, So take care. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Anisha, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for discussing your book with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in History. This is your guest host, Isabel Moore.